Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Um, I do want to share with you for a few minutes on this uh, important day. I mean, uh, well, tomorrow will be an important day for our country, but uh, Independence Day, 4th of July, celebration, you know. Um, it's kind of funny, 4th of July becomes more and more of a day of mixed feelings, you know, for, uh, uh, for, for when you're looking at what's going on in our country. You know, many of us that we've been taught to be thankful for the freedoms and opportunities that we have as Americans, and we still need to be. We still need to be. I mean, the Bible teaches us to be thankful in all things, and we need to be thankful for what we have. But, you know, as we see personal liberty uh, giving way to just increased restrictions on our lives, and we see the freedom of expression that we have that's increasingly used to, to be a cover for some of the worst kind of immorality and perversion that, that is possible. You know, we, we come to this day sometimes wondering, is there anything left to even celebrate? But I want to talk to you, you know, I believe as a church, our first order of business is kingdom business, the kingdom of God, which is bigger than America. It's bigger than any country, bigger than any nation. You know, we're supposed to represent Jesus to the world, and we're supposed to be rescuing those who have fallen, who are in darkness, and pulling them out of Satan's kingdom and into the kingdom of God. But a part of that kingdom business that we're called to is also to be a, a light to the nations. And that means to be a light to this nation that we're in and to pray for this nation that we're in and pray for the prosperity of this nation that we find ourselves in. We're supposed to carry the gospel. We're supposed to let people know what God is like when they look at us and how we live and see the things that we do. They're supposed to know what he is like. You, this, all, this all is summed up here in Isaiah chapter 42 and verses 5 through 7. It says, thus says the Lord God who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. That's a good big introduction about God. And I'm in control and I made all this. And then he says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. And I will give you as a covenant for the people. Listen to what he says. A light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. See, God is speaking here to the nation of Israel. But if this description sounds amazingly a lot like Jesus's ministry, that's because it is. Because what Israel didn't do as a nation, God did through Jesus, the Israelite. And what God did through Jesus, he wants to continue to do through me and you, his body, right. where Jesus's hands and feet, where his ministry, where his min where his body on the earth. The world will know what Jesus is like, what the Father is like by how we act. Sure. What, what else could Jesus mean when he says in Matthew 5, 14, you, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He continues in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What kind of good works are they supposed to be seeing? Same works that Jesus did. The same works that Israel was supposed to do. We're supposed to be pulling out people from the darkness, right? Opening the eyes of the blind, both spiritually and physically. Rescuing people from the snare of the devil. Rescuing them from the dungeon of darkness and sin. Amen? It's what we're supposed to be doing. So we've got a job to do. 
We do. And, 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 and I think, you know, I think one of the things about uh, uh, the church, I really believe that the church is supposed to be a militant church. I think when we lose our heart for war and get comfortable, we become complacent. We don't want to do that. But we do have to know clearly the objectives of the battle we're in. Because uh, we're supposed to you know, pray militantly. We're supposed to give militantly, to worship militantly, to love militantly, on purpose, with intention, with objectives and goals in mind, you know, to a degree. But uh, we're not supposed to shy away, you know, from those difficult things and those places on the front lines where people are, are trapped and ensnared. We're not supposed to turn our face from people in need. We're supposed to be there where, where the need is. Right. We need to have that kind of aggression like King David had before he was king when he ran after the giant. So I'm going to take off your head. We, we need that grit sometimes, right? But we have to know our objective because people are not our enemies. People are not the enemy. Our conflict is not with flesh and blood, but what? With spiritual forces of wickedness, right? We can't throw stones at the people that we're supposed to be reaching and rescuing. Can you imagine a SWAT team? Speaking of military, you know, going in to rescue somebody and they get in there and they move in behind enemy lines and they rescue the man and they find him malnourished and, and uh, having been tortured in need of medical care. And, but they're mad at him for getting there in the first place. So after they pull him out, before they get him back, they just work him over again. <laughs> come on, has he suffered enough? I mean, come, what they're going to do, they're going to rescue him. And maybe he was wrong. They'll deal with that later. But their job is to pull him out and get him to safety. Give him the first aid care he needs. Save his very life. They have one job to do. We have one job to do. Go in there and pull people out. Rescue them from the kingdom of darkness. So in the same way, we can't be angry with those we're supposed to be praying for. We can't be mad at those who are lost. Because Jesus wants to rescue them. And see, that's an issue that as a church in America, we've got to really work this out. Because we have, to, we have to have this figured out in our lives before we can actually rescue America. You know, I mean, there's a lot of ministries out there that just slam everybody. And there's a lot of things to be slammed. <laughs> I'm serious, there are. But, but that's not going to win the lost. And if America's going to change, the lost have to be won for the kingdom. They have to be rescued. Right? Right. You know, America is so polarized in many ways, but it's by design. You know, why do we have to draw all these lines between generations, between races, between genders? Uh, even now it's between, you know, preference. And I, I know kids are in the room, so I don't want to say everything. But, you know, the, the crazy things that are out there right now, why do we have to draw these lines and polarize everybody all the time? Because as long as we're shooting at each other, the devil's winning. Right. The power brokers and those who are trying to take our freedoms and power. Well, they're the ones who win when we are just always at each other's throats. Right. right? How about let's rescue people. Let's show them the goodness of what you and I believe. Amen. And if they'll see that, will they not come? At least they have a choice. Mm -hmm. we, you know, when we got our guns turned on each other, the devil's just laughing at us. <laughs> and that's what's going on in our nation today. And more important than the political situation that we see is the kingdom situation. You know, we can't hate those that Jesus has sent us to reach. We can't. It's easy to sometimes, but we can't. Can't be like the prophet Jonah. Remember the prophet Jonah? Right? He was sent to this city called Nineveh, the largest city in Assyria. And he hated them. The word of the Lord. Look at Jonah chapter 1. Put that up there. Yeah. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. He goes, I want them to go out. I want you to go out and, and preach there because their evil has come up before me and God had something planned for their destruction. But Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. He was afraid that if he would actually go there and preach, there was a chance that they might actually repent. And if they repented, you know what would happen. God would what? He'd forgive them. <laughs> and then he wouldn't destroy them like Jonah wanted to see them destroyed. Come on, some of us, I mean, we feel a little justified at times looking at God's going to judge America. I've been hearing that all my whole life. I mean, I mean, great man, David Wilkerson started prophesying that years ago, but God's going to judge America. Well, okay, we're on the course. I'm not arguing with that prediction at all, but it's pretty obvious at this point. But I mean, <laughs> check your own heart. Are we going to be glad when America's judged secretly? Or do we really want them to come in and be saved and have a chance? We, we, we've, got to, we've got to try to rescue people. Because when judgment comes, it's, the, the opportunity is lost. We'll regret that in eternity to have lost this opportunity. Amen? Jonah hated the people. So Jonah, he gets, he's real smart. He gets in a boat and he heads for this place called Tarshish. And the Bible says in verse 3 that he went to flee from the presence of the Lord. I guess he thought God didn't live in Tarshish. <laughs> he thought God lived in Israel only. I don't, I don't know what he's thinking. But I just want to tell you, if you're running from God, God will find you. <laughs> you're, you're not going to run somewhere where he doesn't know about it. So God found him. He did. And if you read the story, you know it involved a fish and some swimming and all kinds of stuff. But he sent him again to Nineveh. And he said, go into the city. And so he's walking through the city and he says, in 40 days, this place will be overthrown. And I want to tell you, Joseph was, or jo Jonah was a prophet, but his prophecy didn't come true. Why? Because lo and behold, they repented. <laughs> it was the last thing he wanted to see. And God forgave them. I mean, he's up there. He's wanting to see fire and brimstone, right? He's wanting to see, you know, some judgment, man, some lightning bolts from heaven and some fire coming down consuming these people. But he didn't get to see it because they repented. Do we really want to see the lost come to repentance? You know, I've got some specific examples. And as I was preparing, I was just thinking about what's going on. And you're, you're, you're well aware. I don't even, like I said, I knew when, when we invited the children in the room, I don't want to be too specific, but some of the things are going on out there are so horrific, I can't even say it. <laughs> Do we really want to see those people come into the kingdom? Or do we want to see them judged? That's a good checkup, isn't it? Do we want to see them punished for their sin? Jonah preached in Nineveh. The people repented. And if you go to the last chapter, chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. They repented. God relented from the evil that he was going to bring, the destruction. And it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. <laughs> he was displeased. And I'm sure God was real concerned about that too. <laughs> it says, and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord. I love how real these prophets are with God. You know what I mean? Come on, we don't need your pretty prayer or you pretend like everything's good. This is raw, man. He's, Jonah is exposing his heart to the Lord. And he says, isn't this what I said when I was in my country? That's why I was trying to get away from you, why I made haste. 
to flee to Tarshish because I knew that you are a gracious God. I knew that you are merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And thank God he is or we wouldn't be here. Come on. Amen. But here's the thing. Jonah knew that. But he wanted the people of Nineveh to know him as an angry God, full of wrath and hateful and ready to punish the sinner. Come on, how many times have we portrayed God as an angry God, full of wrath, ready to punish the sinner, when in fact he's merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love? And the last thing he wants to do is destroy a country. Because he's had opportunities. I mean, with what we've done over the years as a nation, He's had opportunities. If he wanted to destroy us, he could have justified it. But he doesn't want to. He waits and he waits and he waits. Do we do that sometime? Do we misrepresent him? I want to um, go with me to uh, Luke chapter 10 if you have your Bible. If not, I'll have it up on the screens. But uh, when we go there, we'll jump around just a little bit. But stay there in Luke chapter 10. And verse 25 begins the, the conversation that Jesus had with a, a teacher of the law, a lawyer, and where he uh, uh, shared the story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it says in verse 25 that, Behold, a lawyer stood up in front to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do? You know, the world thinks they've got us figured out because they think we're all about, What shall I do? People ask the same question that he asked. What shall I do? I want to receive this God kind of life. You know, as believers, we have that eternal life now. See, the Jews, they, their, their, um, their belief about end time things was they were believing in the new creation. And really, we believe in the new creation too. We're, we're, that's, that's, that's what Jesus predicts that's what god predicts in the scriptures through the prophet there'll be a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwell heaven is um not the heaven is where we go when we leave this world before we come back and we're part of the new creation after the resurrection that's just how it works you know heaven is important but it's not the end of the world as they say <laughs> there's a new world coming and there'll be a new heavens and a new earth that we'll be a part of and so the, he's wanting to know how can i partake of the life of that coming age how can i inherit this life where i live forever as part of the coming new creation but eternal life for us begins when we enter the kingdom of god that's why it says in first john 5 11 and 12 this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And that life is in his son. So whoever has the son has life. And whoever does not have the son does not have life. So we are right now in this present time a part of that coming creation. Right? If any man be in Christ, new creation. So right now the new creation is invading the old creation through the body of Christ. Through the believers. Through the church. And the Bible uses these different metaphors and illustrations to illustrate receiving this life, like being born again or being made a new creation. And so here's this lawyer, though, and he wants to know what he has to do to be part of that world to come. And I think it's interesting that Jesus didn't say, just believe and you'll receive life, because that's what the book of John says in John 3, 16, right? right? Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have this life. But Jesus goes on instead to tell him a story to illustrate the kind of things people who have this life do. Right? So he says to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read it? Does it matter how you read the, read the Bible? 
<laughs> it does, doesn't it? Because when you, when you read things that you're familiar with, you're reading it, your eyes are going through, but you know how it is. You get to a verse and your mind finishes the verse before you even get to read it, right? Because your mind just fills in the blank and you go so fast. That's why it's good to read it sometimes slow. Look at every word. Consider the meaning of every word. Look at the verses before it. Look at the verses after it. Put it in a context and try to understand what the original intent was instead of just our own interpretation because our minds work just dangerously fast sometimes. The Bible says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you will let it, It'll sort your heart out. If we'll allow the word to, it will search us and judge us and even change us. But when we just come at it fast, what happens is we search it, we judge it, and then we, we change it to suit our agenda and suit our purposes. No, how do you read it? It's important how you read it. It's important to get it accurately. So the lawyer answered, and he, he tells them how he reads the word. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. But desiring to justify himself. Look, he's obviously convicted here. He feels the need to justify himself. After his own words, his own statement of this, Jesus agrees with what he said. And then he realized he's convicted. He's trying to look for a way out. He goes, so who's my neighbor? He's obviously under conviction here. You know, our earthly relationships do affect our relationship with God. I know I don't like it either. <laughs> but, but in 1 John 4.20, it says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Come on, it's easy to be a good Christian when you live all by yourself in a monastery somewhere. You, you go up into the mountains by yourself. But come on, Christianity happens right here in the real, real world, man, where people who are not like you are <laughs> pulling on you and challenging you or giving you opportunity to prove your, <laughs> your, your patience. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Remember the, the man who Jesus said, uh, he says, if you're offering a gift at the altar, remember that your brother has something against you. What? Leave your gift there before the altar. Go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your gift. So how we, how we uh, react with one another, it affects or at least it reflects our true heart toward God. Because how can I really love God and hate the people that he died for? Right. How can I love God and try to express my love for God? If I want to express my love for God, what better way to do that than to express his love to the objects of his affection, which is people? So who is my neighbor? That's what he's wanting to know. Who is my neighbor? If my neighbor is just those who live in my little small circle of friends, my small world, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> if my neighbor is just other Christians... I, I can make it. I can do that. If my neighbor is just people who are like me, you know, think like me, live like me, then I'm good. I'm good. But to answer his question, Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. The story has become so well known in our culture that the term Samaritan means somebody who does good. 
But back then, the Samaritan was a uh, people that the Jews absolutely hated. If there was any kind of racial prejudice at all in the in the New Testament, this is <laughs> these are probably the most hated people by the Jewish people, the Samaritans. And at the end of the story, I think it's interesting that Jesus he didn't tell them who was he didn't tell them who was and who wasn't his neighbor. But he, what he did was he gave them a charge to go and be a good neighbor himself. Isn't that interesting? So look at this, verse 30. It says, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him, and they left him half, they departed, and they left him laying there half dead. And so what happens? Now, by chance, in verse 31, a priest was going down the road, and we, he saw him. He passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, and when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. I think it's interesting because as these travelers are going by, including the Samaritan who's about to come, none of these travelers had a connection with this man at all. Like you would think, you know, like, who is my neighbor? None of them knew who he was. When I was a kid, we had a car accident. And I, I remember it. I was like 10 years old, I think. And uh, we were coming. Uh, we were in Nebraska, so it was just a regular state route highway. But there's this bridge with a, a tractor coming across the other way, taking up both lanes. So we had to stop. And this tractor-trailer truck carrying cattle came up behind us and hit us at full speed. And it was a miracle we lived, honestly. Um, but we're sitting there on the side of the road in the aftermath of this. And uh, lo and behold, as people are passing by, somebody passed by who knew us from our church. And they stopped. And that's reasonable, right? To stop because they knew who we were and they were able to help us. You need anything? Do you need a ride? Yeah, because our car was totaled. But see, there, there was a connection already. There was a neighborly connection. But these there's no reason for any of these people to stop. They didn't recognize, oh, there's Joe laying in the ditch, you know. Uh, I knew he went before me. But let, let's go help him. There was just no reason. But here comes the priest, and, and he passes by on the other side. And here comes the Levite, and he does the same. These two people represented the highest level of organized religion there was. Right. Right. They worked at, you know, if the man had brought a sacrifice to the temple, they could have done it. They could have taken him and sacrificed it and offered it up and gave him the blessing and everything. But when he's laying down in the ditch, broken and hurting, they had nothing to offer him. Nothing. And then see, Jesus comes along and has something to offer people. He went around doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil. That was Jesus's ministry. We identify with Jesus, not the priest that way. So then along comes the Samaritan in verse 33, and it says, The Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was. Come on, Jesus came to where we were, did he not? Is that my wife? <laughs> Had to be her. <laughs> Had to be her. Just go ahead, try to sneak out unnoticed. <laughs> I'll call you out. <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> so the, the Samaritan came to where he was. And you know, God has also asked us to go out to where people are. And it says, when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. He had a feeling for him. You know, it turns out that love is a feeling after all. <laughs> We've done all this teaching that love is not a feeling. It's a decision. Love is not a feeling. It's a principle. It turns out that love is a feeling. You know, the verse said what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your strength, and with all your mind. Listen, love is a decision in your heart. Love is an emotion in your soul. 
Love is an action in your strength. And love is a principle in your mind. It's all true. It's not just an emotion. But there's an emotion attached to it. It's not just an action. But there's a principle behind it. It's not just a principle. There is a decision. You hear what I'm saying? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And love your neighbor in that same way too. And so the man, he saw him and his heart of compassion is open toward him. And thank God, that's how God loves us. It's not just a principle. We've made God, you know, sometimes he loves me by principle because he's so awesome and good. He loves me even though I'm horrible. Well, I might be horrible, but he still feels, has feelings toward me. Right. He does. Something that moved him. And that's what the Samaritan did. He saw the man and it says, when he saw him, he had compassion. And verse 34, it says, he went to him. There it is again. He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you need, I will repay you when I come back. Look, his heart of compassion actually cost him something, didn't it? Which of these three do you think, Jesus said, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man who hated Samaritans so much, he wouldn't even say the Samaritan. He said, the one who showed him mercy. (laughs) And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. So here's my question. What were the fears of the religious leaders who walked past the man? Why didn't they stop? First of all, they could have been afraid of being attacked themselves. It was a dangerous road. You turn your back and you bend over, you're starting to help a man. What if it's an ambush? Right? You know, uh, there's real fear. There's real risk in serving God. There is. I'm not going to pretend like there's not. There is. Remember the movie, The End of the Spear, with the the missionaries to Ecuador? Jim Jim Elliott, who went down there and and, uh, they were trying to reach the Wanabi people. And he got killed, man. He wasn't even 30 years old. He died. And then later, the wives of the, the five men who died actually went back there and evangelized the tribe. Come on, I wouldn't do that. Would you do that? <laughs> they did that, man. They laid down their life. They took a risk. And, and later, um, years later, Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's husband, or wife, rather, she was on, a, on, a, on an interview, and they were talking about when Jim Elliot died at the end of the sphere. And she said, Jim didn't die that day. Mm-hmm. And they're like, yeah, you're crazy. <laughs> we know he died. <laughs> No, no, Jim didn't die that day. You know when Jim died was beside his bed when he was in college on his knees. That's when he surrendered his life to Jesus. And there is, there is a risk to serving God. But come on, we don't, we don't live just for this life only, do we? Maybe they were afraid of becoming unclean, you know? There's a good chance that that man lying there was dead. And if they were dead, and if a priest or a Levite were near a dead person, then they wouldn't be able to go and do their duties until they went through a whole time of purification. You know, but how many times are we so trying to be so clean, religiously clean, that we don't want to, you know, be around people who are maybe not living right? But how else are you going to reach people? Right? You, you've got to be willing to be around the unclean things of the world. You've got to be willing to do that. Not saying that we should compromise with that or become that, but we've got to be willing to be around those things, to love them and to show them Jesus. You know, I'm not talking about compromising right living, because if you're going to rescue somebody, you've got to be on good footing yourself. 
<laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? You've got to be somewhere solid so you can pull somebody out of the pit. Otherwise, you're both going to end up in the pit, right? And if you're not there spiritually, yeah, draw back. <laughs> draw back, get strong, whatever. But come on, when you're on good footing, you should be able to offer a lifeline to help people. You know, people people um, have said things like, uh, you know, over the years, um, you know, when you're praying for people and maybe they have demonic activity in their lives. What if that demon gets on me? And Lester Summerall used to say, a fly doesn't land on a hot stove. <laughs> Meaning if you're if you're hot enough for God that you can get the demon off of somebody, you don't have to worry about that thing coming on you. <laughs> Because it doesn't want anything to do with you. If you've got the power to cast it out, it doesn't want to deal with you. So be on fire for God. Be hot. Be filled with God's word. Let it overflow. And go. don't be afraid to go into those places and rescue people. Come on, that's good. And third, they were afraid that it might cost them something. And yes, it will. <laughs> Sorry, it will. It'll cost you, you know, cost the man his time. Stopping and picking the man up. It cost him a walk because he's riding his animal instead of him. You know what I mean? He gave them two denarii. That's two days' wages. You know what I mean? I don't. I, you feel that when you give away two days' wages. You know, right. put them on. Then he says, uh, "When I come back, I'll repay you if there's any more." I read read one thing and said that that was enough to probably keep him in that hotel for two weeks. He says, "If he needs more, I'll, I'll come back and uh, I'll pay you more." He's willing to stay with the man until he saw him through to to uh, rescue, and it's, that's the heart that we need to have. You know, as these guys are going out and they're feeding, I mean, what are they? They're building these relationships and they're there. They're consistent. As people get to know about the ministry and the need, I know what it is to be consistent in those kinds of ministries. They know where to go to for help. And then you hold their hand, you walk them through it. So, you know, it turns out that the priest and the Levite, the guardians of the scriptures, they couldn't actually do the scriptures. They couldn't do what Jesus intended, what God intended in the scriptures. But the one that they rejected was the one who actually did God's will. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Yes. Come on, the Samaritan in this story is Jesus because mm -hmm. he went to where we were and rescued us when we were unclean. And he didn't, no, I can't touch them. They're dirty. <coughs> we were a mess and he came and he rescued us. You know, we've been hearing a lot about supply lines lately in the news because of the war of Ukraine, right? You know, it's one of the things, like if you're a manufacturer, you're, you're very well aware of your supply lines, you know. If you're a businessman and you want to build a factory somewhere, where are you going to build it? You're going to build it somewhere where there's infrastructure, right, because you got to get your goods shipped to and from. You're going to have – you need some human capital. You need labor, and you need – I'm talking to an engineer right here, right? You correct me if I'm wrong, but you need raw materials. You need to be able to get your raw materials in there. But what I want you to think about is when you look around at the perversion and the crazy things that are going on in this world today, I want you to see them as raw material. Yeah. Raw material. Because when God created the heaven and the earth in the beginning, you know, the, the, uh, the theologians, they study it and they say he, could, he created the world out of nothing. But the new creation is made out of something. He takes your life and my life and he makes a new creation. It's raw material. Don't you see raw material of holiness, of good Christian? Come on, the people who are so perverted and running, running from God right now, they are the hope for our country. All you got to do is get them saved. Come on. I believe in, I believe in the salvation of Jesus. I believe in the working of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person. Do you? I do too. And the souls turn into Paul's. And the souls turn into Paul's. Come on. 
You're so right. So um, the raw material for the new creation is already here. Listen, it's walking among us. It's living among us. It's working among us. It's going to movies and restaurants and parks. It's voting. <laughs> it's making TikTok videos. <laughs> Doing all these crazy things. They're here. But come on, we've got to believe that Jesus wants to save. See, because America is that traveler on the road. And the question is, will you and I be the Samaritan? Or will we be the Levite? And will we walk by and be like Jonah and just whatever you get, you deserve? Come on, as America's blessed, we're blessed. It's worth America's worth fighting for. God's not done with America yet. I don't believe he is. First thing we need to do is we need to be in a position to help. 2 Corinthians 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. You know, we emphasize pray. Even in my Bible, my ESV, the heading of this whole chapter is pray. It doesn't say pray. It says humble yourself, pray, seek my face and turn. That's what it says. You know, because if we emphasize pray, pray for America, see, there's no, there's no admission of guilt or complicity on my part as long as I'm praying for them. Because it's them somewhere out there that's the problem. And as long as I'm praying for them out there, the problem, I'm not, I'm not seeing myself as part of the problem. But this God, this, in this passage, God isn't calling them out there to repentance. He's calling his people who are called by my name. So, so fit. I didn't know Rinkin was going to share that this morning. I knew she had that experience where God told her to repent. I mean, I don't want you to think that she's been living in some kind of gross sin for the last eight years because she's not. She's had ministry and success and even in India, powerful, powerful ministry and, and healings and, and signs on her life. But God, she felt the need to repent. And here this verse is calling my people, he says, to humble themselves, to pray, to seek and to turn. So let's hang on to God. Let's hang on to holiness and even hang on to the things that we enjoy. You know, as Americans growing up here and our heritage and our culture, let's hang on to some things. But let's go, let go of methods that just don't work. You know what I'm saying? To reach the lost. Let, let's, let's not just be able to quote scriptures at people, but let's demonstrate God's love to people. Let's do the things that scriptures tell us to do so that God can use us to be the people who will actually rescue America. It's time to repent ourselves and to seek the Lord. God says that, you know, if we'll seek him, we'll find him. That's what he says. You know what that tells me? It tells me that right now we have all of God that we actually want because we'll have as much as we seek for. It's as simple as that. Um, when I was, uh, I went to Texas a few years ago, I went through Arkansas. Do you know there's nothing in Arkansas past Little Rock? I didn't know that, man. I'm going through Little Rock. I'm thinking, let me get through the city and I'll stop to eat. There's nothing past Little Rock. Nothing. I got hungry. I started seeking. I finally found the McDonald's. It's all I could find. You know, I should have ate in Little Rock, man. It was Chick-fil-A in Little Rock. That's better than McDonald's. Come on. Seek him well, he may be found. Let's not miss this opportunity. Let's fill up on his goodness now, right? Let's not miss the opportunity today to know him. And then we will be in a position 
to be his rescue people for our nation. Amen. Amen. Let me get the band to come back up forward. And uh, I just want to pray. If you'll pray with me for America. Let's just go ahead and intercede for a moment. Father God, I take this passage in 2 Chronicles to heart. Lord, first I just want to come to you in humility and repentance, Lord. I want to repent for growing lukewarm. I want to repent for a lack of concern for souls. Lord, I just want to repent for squandering this opportunity to know you and seek you while we are free and while we are in a country where we can gather in your name. Lord, we've, we've forsaken these things, Lord, as a church in many ways. And we will, we, will, we will regret it if we were in a country where we weren't allowed to do these things. So, Lord, as long as the day is shining, we want to seek you. We want to know you. Lord, renew to us our first love. Lord, we lift up our nation to you. We pray for governors and judges and legislators. We pray for the president of the United States. Lord, first we pray and lift them up, Lord. We pray for that you would guide them, that we may live at peace, that we may have the freedom to serve you, Lord, without fear. Father God, we ask that you would guide them or replace them. But Lord, we ask for freedom to remain in this land, freedom to serve you, freedom to gather together in your name, and freedom to represent you and preach you and proclaim your name to the people. Father God, we also lift up the law enforcement, the first responders, the military, Lord, as people are out defending our borders, defending our cities, defending our towns. Lord, we pray for safety for them, Lord. We pray for even-handedness as they deal with the public, Lord. Lead them. Don't let them get out of control, but let them do justice. And Lord, most important, we pray for a blessing on our country. Father God, we pray for a revival for our country. Lord, we'd ask you to open up the eyes, Lord, of, of those who are living in darkness. Father God, that they will, those blinders would come off their eyes, that they would be able to see with their eyes, to hear with their ears, and understand in their hearts, Lord. I ask that you would thrust laborers into this harvest field, Lord, because I believe that in, in many ways, America is that field that is white unto harvest. I believe America will repent if it would just see Christians who are actually representing you for who you are instead of representing institutional religion that they've been fed for generations. Father God, we repent of that. Lord, we'll love you. We'll not try to make you known as an angry, cruel God who just wants to punish the Lord. Though though judgment is is there, you are slow to judge. You are slow because you extend mercy because you want everybody to come to be saved. You want your children to return to you. So Lord, we plead for their lives. (laughs) Father God, move on your people, Lord. Raise up a people who will go who will go to where they are and rescue them out of the darkness and bring them into the kingdom of your dear son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.